welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting Professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Team Builder is offering both in-season and off-season strength and conditioning programs specific to pitchers or position players. These programs come free with any Team Builder free trial. Their software is trusted and used by the best. Team Builder has helped propel many teams to win championships and most recently the World Series Championship Atlanta Braves. Personally, we used Team Builder in my last couple of years at Western Illinois. You can get the program once you start a 14-day trial with Team Builder. Use promo code ABCA when you sign up for your free trial at teambuilder.com. That is T-E-A-M-B-U-I-L-D-R.com. We head over to Prep Baseball on this week's ABCA podcast with Phillips Academy Andover head coach Kevin Graber. Coach Graber also carries the title of Senior Associate Director of Missions at Andover. Phillips Andover has become a consistent winner during Coach Graber's tenure. Coach Graber's had a unique path in the game, playing college baseball at Winthrop, St. Rose, and professionally. He's coached at every level of baseball. He's also a cancer survivor. Coach Graber spoke on the main stage at this year's Chicago convention. In this episode, we cover cold weather practice planning, what he learned coaching summer ball, his battle with lymphoma, what he loves about teaching and coaching at Phillips Andover, and his preparation for speaking on the main stage. Let's welcome Kevin Graber to the podcast. Here with Kevin Graber, Senior Associate Director of Admissions, uh, baseball coach at Phillips Academy Andover, uh, Associate Scout for the Yankees, Assistant Coach in the Cape League, but has been all over the map with summer leagues, uh, and then spoke uh, at Chicago this year on the main stage. So, KG, thanks for jumping on with me. It is my pleasure, Ryan. It's been on my bucket list to maybe appear on this podcast at some point. I don't I know about that. <laughs> well, I, no, I listen to episodes um, almost every day when I go out on my daily trail run. I'm not listening to music. I'm listening to ABCA podcasts and hearing from other coaches. So just thank you for this amazing resource. Hey, do you think, because I, I, I do the same thing. Do you think as you get older, more podcasts probably than music? Yeah, I get lost in the podcast when I'm running, um, just in the in the conversation and in the stories and in the information I'm gathering in a way that I don't really get lost in music like I perhaps used to. So maybe I'm getting old. I don't know. 
Hey, were you allowed to run as a player growing up? I mean, high school, youth leagues, college, pro ball, were you allowed to run? You know, in high school and college, we we did, we conditioned in the preseason because, you know, I grew up in the Northeast. I'm from Albany, New York. The weather's not good. And so what do you do? You get in the gym and you get in really good shape. And, you know, in college, like that's how we're going to be better than the teams we're going to face when we go down south. We're going to be more fit than them and we're going to be grittier. Um, so there was a little bit of that. Um, interestingly, in our program now, you know, we do a lot of off-season strength and conditioning, but when practice starts, you know, we have a 90-minute practice block. So we are we got to get the skills and drills as quick as we can. So we have to forego a little bit of that when the season starts. Yeah, but, I, you know, I, I picked up jogging and trail running as I've gotten older just because, you know, we get to wear that uniform every spring, yeah. and I want to look good in it, you know? Yeah. But what about stealing bases? I mean, were you allowed to I – mean, because I know growing up for me, I was fast, but yeah. I co I had coaches that allowed us to run and similar to how you're running it, you know, at Andover, were you allowed to, to steal growing up? Okay, now, now I understand the question. Sorry yeah. about that. So, you know, I grew up across the street from a Sandlot style baseball diamond in Albany, New York. I grew up across the street from the New York State Training Academy, where they train all the prison guards for the state of New York. And it's actually a prison. They have inmates there who maintain the grounds and things like that. But on that property, they had a sandlot style baseball diamond where, you know, kids from the neighborhood could actually go and play. We didn't have to hop a fence or anything. And man, almost every day on that field, it was like me and my friends against you and your friends. No adults, no coaches, no umpires, man. If I wanted to steal, I stole. And we had catchers geared up in full positions and everything. And if I wanted to like make a hard turn at first base and get in a rundown between first and second, like I did that just because like it was fun. So that's where I got that experience and that inspiration for the style of offense we run now and what I present at the different conventions, whether it's, you know, ABCA or the World Baseball Coaches Convention, or I did the Michigan High School Baseball Coaches Convention this year as well. So we developed this style of play that I used to call backyard baseball, but now I call systematic chaos because I want to give kids the green light to make plays but I'm also a control freak. So I, I, I want to make sure we're teaching the stuff that they're doing and we have skills and drills for, for all that. So, yeah, I love the freedom to let it rip. And it comes from my, my, my childhood days playing on that field. Yeah, mine as well. I, and you say you're a control freak, but just watching the videos and, and that's the, the neat thing for me is I'm running the youth stage. So I don't get to see a lot of the main stage stuff. So now getting to go back and watch the main stage presentation. It's neat for me to be able to watch that because you said you're control freak, but I, I don't buy it because you're letting your guys run loose. We are, but you know, there have to be checkpoints that fall into place for all the stuff. Our guys have the green light to do, whether it's jump lead steals at first base or jump lead steals at second base, timing, distance, and anticipation. Those three things have to fall into place. And we spend a lot of time defining those three things and drilling those three things. So we're never flipping a coin. We're, 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 you know, it's checkpoints have to be met before our guys go. But man, and when they go, they got the green light, the red it rip. Hey, do you think being inside helps that? I, I think it helps the the colder weather parts of the world because I think it helps with the fundamentals because you're you're limited on being able to get outside and, and play. So I just think northern teams, Midwest teams, they're more fundamentally sound on some things because they that's what the game's allowing them to do because they're inside. Well, yeah, I mean, Ryan, that's a really good point. And, and here, you know, we have a, a really nice indoor field house that we get to practice in, but we share that space with every other spring team who, when the weather is bad and the weather is bad during the wintertime here in, in New England, you know, we, we don't always have access to that space. 
And so what I love to do is even if we don't have a practice time indoors, you know, we can go in a parking lot, we can go, you know, any patch of grass, uh, you know, we got some, some roads on campus that aren't inhabited by traffic, by automobile traffic. And we can just set up base running drills and, and the guys love it. You don't need any equipment. You, you don't need a bunch of coaches. You just need me. And uh, so that's when we put our, our base running game in primarily. It's usually in a parking lot on our campus somewhere when we don't have practice time. Because when we do have practice time, we want to get swings. We want to get ground balls. You know, we want to get defensive repetitions and all that fun stuff. And we do most of the base running stuff outside of those blocks of time. Do you have a set temperature where you can't go out and throw? <laughs> Not really. You know, we do a, an Alan Jager inspired winter long toss program, and uh, it's meant to be done indoors. We have this amazing indoor space called the Snyder Center, and it's it's really long. And actually, the width wise, it's not as not as long, but it's actually it's 115 feet from from perimeter net to perimeter net. So that's pretty good. And so we teach them how to throw over each other's heads, you know, into heights in the net, and that equates distance. Um, but what I find is, is the guys throw outside <laughs> and, you know, some guys sent, we, uh, you know, we have a lot of social media, uh, Instagram and Twitter and, and that kind of thing. And the guys like to sell, send me, uh, post winter long toss selfies of themselves after they throw, they want me to know they're throwing and, you know, it'll be 25 degrees out and the selfie will be from outside, you know, and I'll be like, oh man, you guys are hardy. I, I, I dig it. I dig it. So yeah, we don't have a rule or anything like that in place. I just tell them to be smart. Like don't be out there in shorts and a short sleeve shirt. If you're going to be outside, make sure you band and make sure you dress for it. Yeah. Put your stocking cap on, get outside. Mm -hmm. Cause you really can't replace that. Um, you know, th there's a difference between throwing inside and throwing outside with the elements, getting used to the, the resistance on the arm. So there, there really is, if you can get out, you can. And we did the same thing. We really didn't have a set, even if it was like for 20 minutes to get outside to, to toss for the guys, just to get them out there so they're getting acclimated to it. How long have you been implementing the Jager long toss stuff? Yeah, I discovered Alan Jager online around 2012. Um, you know, I've been here since 2008. And it was a life change. You know, the, the, the main thing is what I find with kids when I put the long toss program in, is they have, you know, they're kids and they're enthusiastic and they want to really get after it. And they really want to throw too hard too soon. So you got to help them understand, like, you know, you got to have an arc on it as you're in the stretch out phase. And then when you're on the pull down phase or, or you know, you're creating arm strength when, you, when you're shrinking up the distance, you're not doing anything different. You're just changing the, the trajectory. Um, so that's, it's getting them to understand like how the long toss program works and how it actually builds arm strength. That's the biggest challenge. So daily texts from me to the group, reminding them and sending them videos is really, really important. And how are you relaying to them to get the body moving before they start playing catch to, to obviously warm up? I think that's the tough thing with young kids is they yeah. want to pick the ball up and they want to start throwing. So how are you relaying, getting the body going before you start playing catch? Yeah, Ryan, great question. So, you know, as they say, warm up the throw, don't throw to warm up. So, you know, they're, they're, they're moving around, getting a run in, getting that core temperature up, you know, might do a little bit of dynamic stretch. They're, they're doing their pre throwing, you know, Jager inspired J band routine. Um, and then when they start throwing, it's, it's really, really light toss and then into your rocker drill and then into your pitchers crow hop till we get out to the distance. We're going to get out. And then, uh, you know, ease, you know, gradually working ourselves back in, back into pull down mode on the way in. So, you know, we're really, really intentional about it. Did you long toss much as a player? I knew it was a thing, but I didn't have the strongest arm in the world. Um, you know, I was a middle infielder and I was more about having good feet and getting rid of the ball. So it was actually a little bit discouraging long tossing for me because, you know, I had teammates who were, 
you know, my, my best buddy, Paul Reinish played at Wake Forest and then played at, um, you know, played in pro ball and, and his son actually plays for Wake Forest now. And Paul had a cannon and he was a big long toss. He's a good player, like, by the way. I saw him on Sunday. He hit a, a massive long opposite field home run. He's a good player. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, being, being Paul's teammate for basically my whole life, I was kind of like, uh, I, I can't do that. So, <laughs> so I probably could have done a better job with the long toss when I was a kid, but now it's sort of my inspiration. I want, I want the kids to have what maybe I didn't have in place, you know, structurally, you know, when I was a kid, I had great coaches in that they were generous with their time and great baseball people, but there, there just weren't the resources out there that there are now many of them through the ABCA, you know, there, there aren't the podcasts, there aren't the videos, the, you know, the coaching conventions and things like that. So I think we're just all better coaches now we're able to give kids things today that we weren't able to maybe get when we were that age yeah I think that's why we have guys throwing harder than they've ever had before oh, I yeah. just think that the training piece is better we're training the decelerators better but the long toss program is is more regimented uh there's freedom within that but there really is guidelines for kids to develop arm strength with everything that we have for them now which is why we're seeing everybody throw harder now like 90 is the new 85 it's a it's crazy <laughs> it is it's crazy. You know, I see yeah. so many games at every level of college baseball and everybody has guys throwing extremely hard now. It's, it's impressive. It's yeah. Impressive. And we're seeing it in high school in new England here. I remember, um, you know, back in 2012, 2013, our, our best pitcher was Rory Zomack and he was, he was pretty dominant and he went on to pitch at Tufts university. And, but you know, he was 82, 83. And now we got Thomas white, who's, you know, maybe the number one rated player in the country in the class of 2023. And, you know, he'll, he'll hit you with 98. <laughs> It's like, whoa, what is happening? Hey, do you do you think because the indoor facilities are much better now throughout the, the United States, that's allowed kids to train all year round, which is why we're producing better athletes now too? Yeah, and I think it's also a double-edged sword. Like when I see a kid post a video from an indoor facility and it's December and it's like, I hit 94 today. I'm like, awesome. It's December. <laughs> Um, it just, it, it, you can't help, but human nature, you just kind of like, oh man, I hope I hope that kid isn't headed for Tommy John surgery pretty soon. Yeah. I, I, the flat ground piece for me, I'm okay with it's when they're really tuning it up off the mound that time of year. And you know, maybe they don't have a, a high school game for another couple months. It's like, okay, they're already in mid season form. Where do they go from there? Because they're already starting to peak a little bit. Yeah, the shutdown period is, is becoming um, a, a little bit scarce, I think, in a way that can be concerning. But I get it because, yes. like, if you find velocity, doors are going to open. Yes. They really are. Like, if you're a kid and you post a video of yourself on Twitter and you're hitting 90, 91, 92, like, you will get all kinds of messages on your Twitter and your phone. Your coaches will get calls. I mean, I, I it happens with me with kids who are in my orbit all the time. So I, I totally get it. How are you handling social media with your players? So we, you know, I coach at Phillips Academy Andover, you know, we are a boarding high school about 22 miles north of Boston in the town of Andover, Massachusetts. You know, it's, it's a little bit different than the conventional high school experience because we are a boarding school. You know, it's like a college for high school kids, grade, grades nine through 12. And we have a small postgraduate year as well. You know, we have kids from 50 states and 46 countries where the, you know, many, you know, the, the organizations that rate such things have us as the number one rated private school in the country. So it's very prestigious. You know, we've had U.S. presidents come here. George H.W. Bush was probably one of our most prominent baseball alumni before he passed away. 
Um, we were one of the first, I would say, to embrace social media as a way to publicize our program and our kids. You know, I got, you know, I used to be a sports information director, Ryan. I was a sports information director at Amherst College, you know, where I also coached baseball. I was a sports information director at the University of uh, West Alabama, where the head, coach, head baseball coach was Mark Smart at the time. And so I came here with not only the ability to, you know, coach baseball and do what I do in the office of admission and be in a classroom, but like I was literally in expert in publicizing a program. And so I dove in head first with Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, you know, our YouTube channel has more than a thousand videos. So we went in heavy and hard in a way that just wasn't out there at the time. Um, but we're also very careful with what our, what our players do and how they operate with social media because they're branding themselves, but they also represent the program. So anything they put out on social media isn't like Joe Smith did this on Twitter. It's like, oh, the baseball program did that on Twitter. So we err on the side of caution. You know, there's a lot of cautionary tales out there about, you know, players who have tweeted this or, you know, um, you know, a program has done this and the coach, you know, paid the price for it. So we communicate more than we probably need to about, you know, cautionary tales that are out there about social media. And I tell them it's not only what you post, but it's what you comment on other people's posts. It's what people comment on your posts. Like you're responsible for all that. Um, so, you know, we, I understand that that too can be a double-edged sword. So we're really conscious of all that. Yeah. And how do you handle, you know, you're dealing with young kids too, and they're going to see, they're going to see a kid out there, maybe their age that's throwing 90 to 91 and, and they're 78 miles an hour. How do you handle those conversations with your players? Yeah. Fear of missing out. Right. Yeah. yeah you know, and, and sometimes a, you know, a 10th grader or a ninth grader will want to have a conversation with me and we'll meet for breakfast in our dining commons and, uh, coach, what should I be doing, you know, college recruiting wise right now? And sometimes the answer is nothing. Yes. Sometimes, you know, the answer is you need to focus on your own personal development right now. Um, you need to get bigger. You need to get stronger. You need to get faster. Um, because right now, even though you have potential, there's really not much you can show a coach that's going to check the boxes that he wants checked in order to recruit you. So I know it's tough, but sometimes you just got to lay in the weeds and just do the work. Yes. And then, uh, yeah, but one of the great things that you know, Ryan, about baseball is it is a summer game. And that is what I love about it. And even more so than it is a, a spring game, I, I think, in high school, because, you know, we play our 18, 20, 22 games during our spring season. But these kids go out and play, you know, 50, 60 games. And, you know, the college coaches often can't come to watch us play because they're in season as well. But in the summer, that's all the college coaches are doing. So that's when you really make a name for yourself and things happen for you on the recruiting path. You know, baseball is a, is a summer game. And one of the other things I like about the fact that baseball is a summer game is ideally it frees you up to be an athlete. You know, I played basketball in high school. I'm sure you played multiple sports as well, but ideally it should free you up to play football or basketball or run cross country in the, in the fall and, or, you know, basketball in the winter, whatever the other sport is. And I just believe that by, playing multiple sports, become a better athlete and becoming a better athlete, you become better at baseball. But you can do that in baseball because, again, it's such a summer game, I, ideally. Hey, at Andover, do they have to play multiple sports? Oh, that's a that's a really good question. So we have I know prep school because Jeff Trundy and I coached the Falmouth together and he's at the gunnery. Yeah. He's been there forever. And I know that they do have to to try to play multiple sports if they can. Yeah, I got to meet him for the first time this past summer, and it was a great pleasure. I kind of hung out with him for 15 minutes behind the. I owe a lot to that guy. Behind the turtle during batting practice, yeah, totally. He's a lot. I think a lot of people would, would say that. Um, you know, it's different at different schools. We have an athletics requirement, but there's a lot of different things you can do to fulfill our athletics requirement. 
Um, we're a big school, 1150 students, give or take. Um, and it's also a very diverse student population in terms of geography, in terms of you know, socioeconomics, in terms of uh, interest, ethnicities, and faiths. So if we're going to have an athletics requirement, we have to have a lot of different ways to fill that requirement. And so you can play an interscholastic sport, and that'll fulfill the athletics requirement during a given term. But you can also do like an intramural sport. You can do an instructional sport where you can try a sport for the first time. Like kids can do instructional squash or instructional crew or instructional tennis and learn that for the first time with other kids who are new to the sport. Or you can do here what are called life activities. And that would be anything from like weight training to a fitness class, yoga, aerobics, Zumba, spinning, outdoor pursuits, playground games, power walking. So you got to do something, but there's a lot of different things that you can do. Um, and that's been a challenge for me is like, we can't have a baseball program in which we don't think about baseball until baseball season rolls yeah. around because we have, you know, college bound baseball players. So the challenge is how do you put structure in place for fall and winter that doesn't interfere with our kids ability to play another sport. And that's what we've been able to do with our long toss program, you know, with our winter, you know, strength and conditioning stuff, you know, with the amount of hitting that the kids get to do during the winter, it's never in place of playing another sport and it never happens at a time in the day where you have to make that choice. Hey, you talked about the high academics there and you talked about it on, on the main stage as well. How, and we dealt with this with kids that are extremely intelligent, how do you get them to unlock at times because they are going to be so analytical at times with their performance? How do you get them to unlock and just go out and, and free play? Yeah, I mean, I've coached at a lot of different places from California Junior College to, you know, Amherst College to, you know, um, Riverland Community College in Minnesota to Phillips Academy Andover. So, I, you know, in different college summer leagues, when you coach in the college summer leagues, you have a range of kids from all different programs. You know, kids have different attention to academics. Um, so I've been around all different kinds of kids. I've never been around smarter human beings than, than the kids I get to coach now. I mean, it's like, it's like, how are you that smart? It's, it's crazy. And the great thing is I never have to dumb anything yeah. down. Like the more complex, the better they will absorb it. And you tell them once and they'll like their memory's too good. <laughs> um, you know, one of the great things about me with baseball is I had a really short memory that, that really helped me at times, but uh, you know, sometimes these guys just remember things maybe a little bit too long, but you know, what I have to be prepared for is a lot of questions because yeah. they will ask really, really good questions about, and they're not being, um, you know, they're not, they're not being wise guys or they're not. No, they're, they're not. not. Yeah, they're they just, inquisitive. They, they're they just, extremely inquisitive. They want to know, you know, and sometimes though there is, um, you know, there can be a lot going on in their head yeah. when we just want them to relax and kind of have a clear mind and play the game. Um, so I got a really good question during ABCA, during the Q&A after the main stage presentation. And that was, uh, do you have your runners on second base? Like look at the catcher signs and, and kind of. I, yeah, yep. Yeah, and I was kind of like, no, because they're already thinking about timing, distance, and anticipation of the pitcher's looks and all that stuff. We just wanted to sort of clear the mechanism and play baseball at that yeah. point. So, yeah, I have to help them. I have to understand that the kids we have are really smart, and one of the reasons they're really smart is their brains are really, really active. So I have to give them a lot of information, but also help them find ways to calm it down a little yeah. bit. How do you help them center in or also to reset maybe after a poor performance? Yeah, we, we started last spring doing a bunch of mindfulness stuff and, you know, another shout out to Alan Jager, but he's put out some great resources around mindfulness. And, um, you know, I never thought I'd be a mindfulness teacher, but sure enough, I found myself on the performance. Grass. It does. Yeah. I it found does. myself on the outfield grass sitting on a bucket and, and, uh, flow. You know, I mean, that 
every great performance starts with a flow state. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's sports or music or theater. Every great performance, they're in flow state. And so the more that they can train mindfulness, and maybe that's a, a way to reframe that because it's not foofy. It's not... It's allowing them to train to get into flow state more consistently, which is where their best performance is going to be. Yeah. And I, you know, I've never thought I'd be one to lead a meditation uh, <laughs> session, but I, we did it a bunch last spring and it was actually kind of fun and they, they bought into it. You know, one of the things I say to our guys and I, one of the ways I describe it is you have a, a voice inside your head between your ears. And, you know, if you can't control your own mind, it's really, really hard to control a baseball. And that voice will say weird things to you, won't it? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, and you got it. It's like a muscle, man. You got to flex it. You got to learn how to how to massage that voice and how to learn how to work it. You know, another thing I always say to the guys is like, if if you believe you can, you probably will. If if yeah. you don't think you can, you probably won't. But you you got to be able to to have the the tools in place to, to 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 have that mental mindset. Hey, when did you know you were good enough to play in college? Oh, thanks. Um, well, I was on a, a bunch of really, really good teams. I was with a group of guys that, um, you know, we won a state championship in class A in high school at Christian Brothers Academy in Albany, New York, CBA Albany. You know, we won a, an American Legion state championship as well. Um, you know, I had guys who were a year ahead of me that played college baseball. You know, my Legion team, all those guys went and played college baseball. So just being around it and seeing it you could sort of have the belief that that could happen for you as well. It happened much differently back in the day. Yeah. Like there weren't the showcases, there wasn't the social media, you know, they used to have like open tryouts for major league organizations. Like the red scout would come and run a tryout and maybe a college coach would see it, something like that. So how did you get to Winthrop? I mean, because there, yeah. you know, that's always the fascinating path because it was completely different back then. How did you end up at Winthrop? Winthrop University came out of the blue because um, uh, the coach there at the time, Horace Turbeville, um, had, had a relationship with my Legion coach. Yep. And the relationship was because there was another kid that came through the program and went to a junior college and then ended up there. And, uh, you know, a relationship was struck. And and my, my Legion coach was like, hey, I got this kid who's a middle infielder. He can hit a little bit. And Horace is like, well, you know, come on down. Yes. And it wasn't as much of a thing back then in the 80s. No where, you know, us, us Northeasterners would, would go down and play in the South. So if you looked at our roster at the time, there wasn't a lot of me there. So it was, a, and I had never been anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so it was quite an adventure, but I've always been sort of an adventurous person. Is that what brought you back to St. Rose then? Yeah, well, St. Rose, you know, I played. Um, and by the way, I lived across the street from St. Rose one summer. I coached, I coached uh, with the Schenectady Mohawks one summer with Rich Sabote, uh, who was yeah. a St. Rose grad. So I lived across the street from St. Rose one summer. What a small world. I am a uh, Amsterdam Mohawks Hall of Fame inductee. Um, so I actually played three summers for the Schenectady Mohawks and then another summer in that league. Um, so what, what a small world. But yeah, you know, the College of St. Rose, when I – when I made the switch and moved from Winthrop to St. Rose, they were actually NAIA. Yeah. Um, and uh, my first year there, we actually made it to the NAIA World Series in, in Lewiston, Idaho. It was an amazing experience. But the head coach at St. Rose at the time was a guy named Bob Belizzi, yes. who was my head coach with the Schenectady Mohawks. I know Bob. Yeah. So, um, you know, that, I just fell in love with Bob and I and, uh, wanted to play for him during the school he year. He was sick that summer. Um, yeah. You know, he wasn't doing well. That would have been the summer of 98. Um, he was not doing well that summer. 
Yeah, for people who don't know who Bob Olizzi was, he was the head coach at the College of St. Rose and founded the program from scratch because St. Rose had been a, you know, an, an all women's institution. When it went co-ed, um, you know, having male sports was a way to up the male enrollment. And he founded the baseball program there. And he was very much a Pied Piper. He was the head coach of the Schenectady Mohawks in the New York Collegiate Baseball League, which then was the Northeastern Collegiate Baseball League. And a lot of us played for him in the summer and fell in love with Coach Belizzi. And a, a bunch of us ended up transferring to St. Rose. And we, found, we, we sort of formed this super team. And he was a really formative person in our, our lives. But unfortunately, um, you know, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And he fought it for a decade. He did. Maybe even more. Um, but, uh, you know, he finally succumbed to it. But, um, yeah, that, that was a big part of my college baseball experience was playing in my own hometown, Albany, New York, College of St. Rose, playing for Coach Belizzi, you know, making it to the NAIA World Series and then having a bunch of success when we switched to the Division II level the following year. So thanks so much for bringing that up. That yeah, back to it's, baseball is so small. Um, it, is Bob the reason you got into coaching? Is he one of the, the reasons that inspired you to get into coaching? Ryan, what a great question. He was the first person who told me I'd be a good coach. Yeah. And I remember being, I'm having this flashback right now when I was sitting in his office and he told me that. So, you know, you, you asking me that question just brings me back to like 1990, yeah. me being in his office, one-on-one having this conversation. And he was the one who encouraged me to take that step. So, yeah. And I started coaching when I was 22. Yeah. I was the head coach of a Legion team in Scotia, New York, which is kind of a suburb of Schenectady, New York. Yeah. And I'm 22. These kids are 18. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what I didn't know. Like I look back now and, you know, I'm not the world's best coach, but I know a lot more than I did when I was 22 years old, head coach of, a, of an American Legion team. But that's some people ask me, like, how do you get to where you are? And I'm like, you got to coach. Yes, you have to. You got to get out there and you got to do it for free quite often. And, and uh, you got to find an opportunity for yourself. But, yeah, you just got to get the ball rolling. I told the Evansville players that back at NC State for breakfast. I was like, hey, I, I lost money when I coached for the Schenectady Mohawks, but it was the best thing that I decided to do. I got out of my comfort zone and went somewhere that I didn't know anybody. And that's just part of getting into it early is you've got to take some chances like that to, to grow because if you don't get out of your comfort zone, you're never going to find out how good a coach you can be. My first paid coaching job and I'm paid I say paid I say loosely <laughs> was, was Laston College in Susanville California California Junior College Baseball which I didn't even know existed being from Albany New York and I packed up my Plymouth Sundance and I drove sight unseen from Albany New York to Susanville California in the Sierra Nevada mountains not that far from Reno Nevada yep. and I was with Steve Abney and Glenn Yonan Steve Abney's blast from the past Midwest I scout. To. I coached in the Midwest forever. So Steve is a longtime Midwest scout. Steve was the one who helped me understand that I didn't know anything. <laughs> um, it was very, very humbling, and, but I'm so grateful to him for that opportunity and helping me come to that realization. But Ryan, you'll appreciate this. After that year coaching at Lassen College, I wanted to be a head coach that following summer somewhere. So I started my own team with this guy named Joe Olano in the Mountains Collegiate Baseball League, and it was called the Electric City Giants. And so as we played our, our California junior college schedule, I would see a kid I liked on the other team. After the game, I'd be like, yo, you wanna come for play for me this summer? <laughs> so I brought a team of California junior college kids to upstate New York for this new team in this kind of podunk league. And we just took the place by storm. I mean, we were doing all the California junior college uh, short game stuff that I had learned, you know, a lot of push, a lot of drag, a lot of, 
you know, delay steals and false breaks and ball and dirt reads and all the stuff they do in California. And everybody was kind of like, whoa, what is this style of baseball? And I had these kids living in my mom's basement and I was living at my mom's house as well. And it was just like, there's no way we should have been, I should have been able to pull this off, but you're 23 years old and you just, you just do it, you know? And so, you know, if you want to coach, man, sometimes you got to carve out these opportunities for yourself. Are you treating your summer ball guys different than your prep guys as far as how you're running things? You know, coaching with the Bourne Braves this past summer in the Cape Cod League, the first thing that I really wanted to do was listen. You know, when I coach my guys here in our program, the first thing I do is talk (laughs) because there's so much I need to give them and want to give them and there's so much they need to learn. But, you know, in the Cape Cod League, these guys are incredible players. They're receiving amazing coaching from major division one programs where, you know, they, they are there for a reason. And so my ears were, were kind of wide open. You know, I like being there early. I like being in the tunnel, kind of like the, the early work guy. And I just liked asking questions like, you know, what's, what's your routine? You know, what do you guys do at East Carolina? What do you guys do at, you know, Arizona State? And then, you know, kind of get in sync with them and in rhythm with them, gain their trust, gain their friendship. And then I'm start to, you know, then I start to be able to insert, you know, a little bit of what I think maybe can help them. Um, so it's really like getting in sync with those guys and it is just like blasting in the face with everything that I know. Plus with Harvey, I mean, Harvey's been up there forever. Um, you know, you have a guy there that's been a legend in that league that um, you can lean on that guy because he's he's been up there and can kind of lead the path a little bit too. I love Harvey. Yeah, if people don't know who who that is, that's Harvey Shapiro is the head coach in, in Bourne and was head coach a couple other places in the Cape Cod League. And now he, he'll be in uh, Wareham this coming summer and just – that was one of the draws to, to go into Bourne was, uh, you know, being around Harvey and then learning his, his ways, because, you know, I've, I've always understood that to, to learn more, you got to be around people who know a lot and have a lot of experience. You know, that was the, one of the reasons I, I ended up at Amherst college in, in 2000, you know, the head coach there at the time was a guy named Bill Thurston, who uh, is an ABCA hall of famer. By the time he retired, he had coached as the head coach at Amherst college for 44 years. And his big thing was, was pitching. You know, he was sort of uh, the, the pioneer of biomechanical analysis of pitching motion before they had really good technology for it. You know, he was a consultant with Dr. James Andrews at ASMI. Um, he spoke at all the conventions. And I had been a middle infielder. And to that point, you know, my arrival at Amherst College, I didn't know anything about pitching. And my goal was to follow Bill around until I could regurgitate everything he had to offer on the topic. And I stayed until I could do that. And that was one of the best things I've ever done. And, you know, to this day, Coach Thurston is, you know, next to my dad and, and a few other uh, mentors that I've had. Just just one of the, the, the best people I've ever had in my life. you feel like coaching in college has helped you now where you're at? Because it, it is a similar college schedule where you're at, correct, for your guys? Yeah, we were able to, you know, our indoor space when I arrived here was almost identical to the indoor space we had at Amherst College. So I, you know, I didn't have to invent anything when I arrived for those indoor practice plans. I had, you know, eight years worth in, in my, uh, you know, on my, on my hard drive. So that was really, really easy. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is you do get more time with the players in college than you do in high school. So I've gotten really good at prioritizing. I've gotten really good at sort of uh, thinking of our program, you know, a, a year long cycle is like an airplane gradually ascending off a runway, especially when we're in season. You know, when I first got here, I wanted to put everything in on day one. 
and now it's it's gradual. We're putting things in, you know, as as we go along. So you know, we'll we'll be halfway through our season, and we're we're learning some stuff for the full for the first time. Whereas in college, ideally, you get all that in in the preseason. Where's the first place you start? So when you're looking at your checklist, what's what's the first place on your checklist with your guys? How we play catch. Yep. To be quite honest with you, um, you know, we have a a lot of um, on and off field core values, and and one of those is uh, just win pregame. And, you know, you, you've been around enough baseball and, and uh, you, you've, uh, you know, you've scouted and, and recruited and you go see a lot of high school games and summer games and you watch two teams play one another. Sometimes you, you know, who's going to win that, that game before the game's even played. You just watch the two teams play catch. Um, and so that's, you know, one of the things for us is, is uh, you know, catching the ball between your shoulder blades, you know, teaching them how to crow hop, you know, teaching them how infielders throw, how outfielders throw, what catchers do, having routines in place. So that's the first thing that we, think about and really stress is just like how to play catch. When I got to JMU, Bob Smith uh, was out of Richmond, Virginia and had been at VCU. He'd been at some places and he's like, Ryan, he goes, when I would go watch a guy, I would just keep a checklist. If they can do this, okay, good. If they can do this. And he goes, hey, as there were more things I was going to have to teach them, then that would lower their scholarship. So yeah. <laughs> he yeah. He goes, if they could do all this stuff, made my life easier. I didn't have to teach it. And that meant they got a better scholarship than the guys that I was going to have to teach a lot more to. And it made sense to me as a young, young coach, young recruiter. Oh, perfect sense. And it stays with you to this day, right? But, you know, the other thing I would say, Ryan, is that they, especially the young guys that come in, you know, the, the new ninth graders, um, almost all of them are on the wrong side of the baseball at the plate. Yes. You know, they're out front, pull side. You know, they've never had to account for change of speeds and, you know, curveballs, sliders and, and change-ups and, you know, contact points are way, way out front. We have to help them understand what it means to work the inside of the baseball, how to put a ball on a tee, you know, how to, how to aim the barrel at that inside seam and, you know, put drill work in place and just, just helping them understand. Um, so that's, that's probably one of the things. And gripping the ball too. I mean, yeah. it was amazing to me. You'd get in there for individual sessions with your new guys, and you would have to go over how to grip the baseball with those guys. Yeah. You, you would take it for granted, but you couldn't. You can't take anything for granted. The guys have even been taught any of that stuff, and it's amazing. Hey, the ball's going to spin better, and obviously the ball tells you if you're doing it right. And it's, uh, that was a fun part for me with coaching guys is because you could take a guy and just some small tweaks here and there is going to allow their game to go to the next level. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, you know, we say things and I don't stop to think that they actually know what I'm yeah. saying. Like we were working on two step patterns, six, three ground balls to the shortstop, just throwing across the diamond. And I was like, guys, you know, the, the goal here is to, is to, is, you know, to funnel it four seam across the diamond, like a pitching machine. And then, you know, we did a couple of reps. I'm like, you guys know what I mean by that? <laughs> so I actually had to stop and talk about what it means to four seam it across the diamond. Yeah. So yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah. So when you are getting in the cage with them and we're talking about being inside the baseball, what are some other things that you're doing with them drill wise that help them get inside the baseball a little bit better? Yeah. You know, we, uh, we're doing a little bit of a, you know, noodle work right now where, you know, we got, we got T set up with a noodle sticking up and we got that right on home plate and they're working front toss and they're working inside it without touching the noodle. Um, that's our, our version of the fence drill that a lot of people use. A safer with a noodle. Safer. Yes. Safer. Yeah. For sure. Um, you know, we're doing some some one-handed stuff where we're, you know, our hand path is kind of A to B rather than in a circular motion. And, you know, we're 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 stopping here without, you know, rolling it over and that kind of thing. That's giving them a sense for the bad path that we like to use. But we've um gotten into recently situational stuff as well. 
you know, it, I, not everybody's down with this, Brian, but we do have a two strike approach in our program. And so, yeah, with two strikes, we are widened out on the plate off the knob, really getting it late, really getting it deep, trying to hit the ball, the opposite field, but also helping them understand that that's the, that's the approach that we want them to have with runner on third base, less than two outs in field back. That's the approach we want. Them are you to going have. right away with that? I love asking that question. Yeah. So with no strikes, are they going right into their two strike approach to be able to move the baseball early? Yes. Love it. For, for us, that's what we do. Love it. So when they're in a situational at bat, you know, I have a nonverbal just reminding them to get into their two strike approach, even though there are not two strikes. Okay. And so, yeah, it's again, it's that runner at third base and field back situation. It's a hit and run where we have to put the bat on the ball. We just really want to hedge our bets so we know we're getting the bat on the ball in those situations. So. And that can be confusing because it's literally called a two-strike approach, yep. but there are times when we want them to use it when there are not two strikes. With our situational days, we had them do the situations off the tee also. You know, like Same. if it was a straight situational day, we had them get in those – even though we were hitting off the tee, we yep. were hitting situations off the tee. We had a, a session uh, two weeks ago where every st- we had six stations, and every station they were in two-strike technique. And it was just for that reason. So, yeah, absolutely. What, what are the things that you feel like helps your help your players the most? Well, um, a lot of coaches say to their players, you got to play hard. And they also say to their kids, like, we, I need you to be a leader. But they don't define what it means to play hard. And they don't define what leadership means in that program. And at a certain point, I, I just felt like I wanted to stop speaking in generalities and get really, really specific and have some standards in place. So we've developed this um, this tradition over the years that we call rock to rail. And so we have a, a boulder out by our right field foul pole. And uh, our baseball field is called Fel- Phelps Park, named after one of our alumni, Dick Phelps. And so when our guys come out of the locker room, they, uh, they pass by this boulder out by the right field foul pole. And they stop and they rub that boulder. They rub that rock and they sort of give a thought for what they want to accomplish that day. Or they can even say a prayer or anything like that. So that's the rock and rock to rail. The rail and rock to rail is the railing of our dugout, which is on the third base side. So they are required to stop at that rock and then be on at least a light jog from that rock to that rail, rock to rail. And the name rock to rail symbolizes the space between that rock and that rail and all the things that we're going to take care of in that space on that day. And it also just shows the world like, you know, I'm not walking to that rail. Like I'm on my horse right now. Like this is the pace and rhythm and tempo that we're going to have today. And this is my commitment to playing hard today. And then along with that, we have two different documents. One is our rock to rail on field stuff. And the other is our rock to rail off field stuff. And our on field stuff has 21 tenants, just like there's 21 outs in a high school baseball game. And I won't give them all to you, but it's, you know, it's things like hit the field running, uh, play with energy and enthusiasm, sprint everything out, You know, our guys are are, are required to be on and off the field in 12 seconds after the third out, you know, hit unselfishly in situation like we were just talking about Uh, play backyard baseball. That's one thing that's big for us. If you get timing and distance and anticipation, we need you to go, man. You know, winning pregame, active listening, communication. Um, And we describe what we mean by all those things rather than just a one word thing. I'm able to get it on one page. They can, uh, you know, again, we're a boarding school, so they're able to tape it up, uh, you know, to their dorm room wall or if they're a day student, you know, their bedroom at home. And that's really, really important. And then the off-field stuff is always, it's, you know, number one is always repping. 
you know, even though you're not on the baseball field, you know, you're in a classroom, if you're at a school dance or even anywhere, even in the virtual realm on social media, like you are representing our team. And so they need to understand that, but also just, you know, work ethic and modeling mental toughness and connecting with teammates, challenging teammates, complimenting teammates, confronting negativity and laziness. Like I think of all the things we do, the education in both of those aspects is of the most value. Like if you're a college program and you're getting one of our guys, they already have this in place. And I think that's just really, really important. Man, what's the least? Has there been something along the way as a coach you're like, I probably need to stop doing that? <laughs> Honestly, uh, I don't want to degrade myself, but I think I'm the worst hitting coach on the planet. In terms of just like teaching the swing, you know, I, I've become uh, this authority on base running and this offense that we run is really cool and a lot of fun. And a lot of people are asking me about it. And how can they implement it? You know, I had that time with Coach Thurston um, learning how to teach pitching and pitching mechanics and you know, just how to manage a pitching staff. You know, we're really good with the on field and off field core values. But just like I have this thing in my head where like kids who can hit have been always able to hit like, <laughs> you know, the kids on my little league team who could hit you know, they were the same kids who hit in Babe Ruth and they were the same kids who hit in high school and the same kids who were able to hit in college. And, you know, I just, I just kind of want to put the bat on the ball and fly around the bases. Yeah. Um, so I probably don't do as much as I should teaching the mechanics of the swing. Yeah. But that's part of knowing your strengths as a coach too. Like if that's not one of your strengths, then, you know, okay, you can outsource that now. I mean, there, there's things that you can do. There's plenty of and yeah. resources out there for guys to learn the swing if they want to. And I still think a lot of it has to do with how their eyes work too. I think that, I think the ones that have always hit their, their eyesight is good. Their cognitive piece works better than others. I think there's a reason why they hit better than other guys because their brain and eyes work better than everybody else's brains and eyes. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, I, you know, I'm kind of generalizing by saying the kids yeah. who could hit who, yeah, are always the kids who can hit, but yeah, there's definitely something to that. Um, Go ahead. Just mainly, yeah. Mainly. I just, I just want to get on base <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and I hate waiting around for like guys to string six hits together. You know, let's get, let's defensive roll. Let's get a bunt down. Let's get a base hit. Let's steal bases. Let's hit and run. Let's run and hit. Let's get a ball and dirt read. You know, let's, let's uh, safety squeeze. Let's, let's do, let's, let's have an offense. Let's have an attack. Let's kind of, you know, it's kind of, let's, let's be like an NFL team uh, and, and have, have, a, have like a system in place. I, that, that really appeals to me. Hey, what have you enjoyed about being an admissions director? My mom did it forever and loved doing it. So what, what have you enjoyed about it? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things I like about it in general here is, you know, I get to be a dean in our office of admission. And again, we're a global applicant pool. You know, we have kids at our school from 50 states and 45, 46 countries and and again, all different ethnicities, interests, faiths, all different rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. Um, and I get to help families through this process of thinking about like what school might be a fit for them in terms of secondary school and also how to navigate our application process and what the culture is like here. But then after the students arrive, like I get to be part of a dorm team. You know, I get to teach a class um, as part of our empathy, balance, and inclusion curriculum. I get to be an academic advisor. Um, you know, I'm the advisor to our senior class as well. Um, I chaperone everything under the sun, even if I'm not assigned to it. You know, I, I, go, I try to support everything that's happening on campus. And the faculty live here as well. So 95% of our faculty live here on the campus with the students in residential apartments and dorms, in houses on campus that are not dorms. 
And so that's that's a big part of it as well. We are we are totally Im embedded and immersed here. So that's that's what I like about it. I'm not just an admissions person. I'm not just a baseball guy. In fact, the unhappiest I've been during different points in my life were when baseball is the only thing I did. Um, you know, I managed in professional baseball for you know a, a few years, and uh, I I would say those weren't the happiest times for, for me because it was just all that was on my plate, and I was not very well rounded. And I've just always been someone who likes to do a lot of different things. Yeah, I do too. Do you think it helps with the quality of life for your family? They're living on campus with you, correct? Yeah, the way I describe it, Ryan, is there are very few places in the world where you can just kind of kick your kids out the front door and tell them to go play. Yep. And, you know, they live on this amazing campus and they can totally do that. I mean, our kids are a little bit older now. Our son, Kyle, plays soccer at St. Lawrence University. Our daughter, Kelly's a freshman at Endicott College. Our daughter, Katie, who I'm so proud of, graduated from the University of Tampa. And she's a second grade teacher in Tampa now. But they've grown up on this campus just going out and playing soccer and tag and climbing trees and coming in and out of the dining commons with ice cream cones and dirty faces. And, you know, they uh, I think they, they've gotten a lot less parenting than maybe the conventional kid uh, who needs to be chaperoned everywhere they go. So, yeah, it's, it's a different life here. And it's a really, really good one. That was one of the appealing things about it. Hey, with the aggressive style that you run, do you feel like it helps you defensively because you're they're seeing it in practice every day? It really does and that's one of the things that you know so for people who don't know we have this offense that we call systematic chaos you know chaos because we want to give these players the freedom to make plays without waiting for a sign from from me and we're, we're sort of the antithesis of this new wave of you know the kids having wristbands so they can decipher the numbers that are being shouted out and I'm, I, that's great now you're seeing pagers which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's just the defensive side. You saw it with Vandy and NC State. They're doing it on the defensive side, but probably eventually it's going to go to the offensive side too yeah. with the pagers, which is crazy. But, you know, as I mentioned before, I just I remember those days where I was out on that Sandlot-style baseball diamond with no adults, and I was just making plays. And, you know, kids don't get the opportunity to get out there and make plays anymore. It's rare. They play for AAU programs with great coaches who give them a lot of signs and you know, everything they do is structured. They don't just have like unstructured baseball play time in which they can just kind of get out there and play. So we put this system in place that I used to call backyard baseball in tribute to my guy, Mike Roberts, who I think is the best base running coach in the history of the game. Um, and we've, we've sort of morphed it into what we now called um, systematic chaos. So chaos, we give them the freedom to make plays, but systematic because we, we have checkpoints and we teach it and we drill it and we make sure they have perfect technique. Um, it's been an interesting journey. When we started doing, like, for instance, jump lead steel breaks at second base, no one in the Northeast had seen them. Yeah. No one knew how to defend. We were literally stealing third base seven times a game. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just like anything, uh, teams came around to understanding what we were doing, and they put structure in place to defend it. And they also started doing that stuff to us. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think in terms of when we do our drill work with base runners, I always, and I got this from Mike Roberts, I always have our pitchers only when we have pitchers only do the base running stuff as well, yeah. because they, then they learn what base runners are doing and they also sort of learn what they have to do to defend it. Yeah. And one of the things that's cool is not only am I really good at teaching the stuff we do as part of our offense, I'm also an expert on how to defend it. <laughs> um, release, release for the middle infielders was the best thing that we added in to stop that was that yep. the pitcher was going to look at either the second baseman or shortstop, whoever they were working with. And we had some sort of a release. So as soon as the pitcher saw that, they knew the guy's feet were stopped and they could they could pitch. Felt like that was yeah. the best way to to stop that. 
was yeah. just to have some sort of a release. And you talk about backyard baseball. That's more backyard baseball because now the pitcher is working with the middle guy, and if he's too far off, then they can flash. That's You now have that two-man game where the coach isn't involved with that. They're out there controlling the running game on their own. Same. And, you know, what, one of the things I like about our office is anything you do to us, we got something to – Yes. to do to you. Yep. And when teams do that, and, and that's, that's a challenge. This, this, you know, that, that'll shut you down. We, we have a, what we call a red alert mode. And uh, we have like a, we have a special ops team of guys that are just like the best of our best at jump lead steel breaks. You know, guys who have the best feet, guys who are a little bit daring, guys who are really, really confident. And we love to have those guys just set up a little bit closer to second base and just jump out and jump back. Yep. And then, you know, we just try, we just mess with them. We just kind of like, woo. <laughs> and so our red alert mode is what we do when teams are really good about that release technique that you mentioned until they just kind of get sick of it and they stop doing a good job with it. And then we hit them with a Cobra strike steel break. Exactly. Uh, but the, the thing I love about that is even though we might not steal third base in a game because a, a team is doing a good job shutting that down, they have to focus a lot of attention on that runner at second base. Definitely. And that's attention they're not focusing on the hitter at home plate. And I'm telling you, with us in the high school level, it manifests itself in great pitches to hit, hit by pitch because we're walks. a defensive role team, walks. So we'll tell we won that battle, even though we might not have stolen third base. Hey, you talked about delay. Was last in the first place you saw delay, or were you doing delay before that? Until I got to Lassen as a coach. I had only ever seen straight steel in my entire life. Oh wow! Because we were doing yeah. it forever. Uh, I was yeah. lucky, and I'm a bit. I'm glad you brought up delay because I think it's still one of the most underutilized offensive weapons that you have, and anybody can do it if you're good at it. And it gives yeah. your slow runners a chance to steal at times too. Yeah, and and Ryan, we've tried every method of delay. Um, yeah. You know, I I've coached uh, this this program called the New England Roughnecks in the summer, and I've had their 15U. And you know, the summer with 15U has been my lab. I mean, I don't care if we're winning these games. I, the kids are happy and they're having fun. It's it's a great time to try different stuff. And so we tried one shuffle delays. We tried three shuffle delays. We tried, you know, different tempos and, you know, turn the shuffle into a sprint before the ball hits the net, after the ball hits the net. Anything you can try, we tried. And uh, Ours you know, was what, like yours. It was into that third. They were sprinting into the third shuffle. So yes, it was going to exactly. be two. And as you're getting into that third one, that's when they got into their break. The one knee down with the catchers, uh, I love delay against that. And our guys are one knee down guys. I'm, I'm totally with the new wave of catching. But, you know, it's that the one knee down, just they want to, if they don't see that runner steal and they catch it and they kind of present it and heads down and they're trying to give the umpire a good look at it. And that's when we're turning shuffle into steel break. And that works really, really well for us. And you talk but about that, as you do it, you know how to defend it. So our second baseman was the most important person in that whole of part of defending it, of screaming delay. Like that, that was part of their key is once the ball was through the hitting zone, their responsibility was the, the runner to make sure they were screaming delay because they're the only person that can see that. Yeah, and they got to get to that get to that bag as well. And so when uh, defense does a good job defending delay against us in that way that you just described – you know, that's when we false break a lot. And yes. that's another thing that I learned from Steve Abney and Glenn Yonan at yeah. uh, Lassen is, you know, when our guys false break a bunch, the middle infielders get sick of yelling, you know, he's going or, or getting a second base. And then that's when they just stop doing all that. We rock them to sleep. And that's when we hit them with the Cobra strike delay steal. Yeah. So whatever you do against us, we, we got something to do back to you, even if it doesn't result in stealing a base. But yeah. there's there's nothing you can do that we don't have something to yeah. give back to you. When are you implementing slash? How early are you teaching slash with your guys? 
Um, so we're working on that in our hitting stations right now. Yep. And, uh, you know, I'm probably giving away too many secrets here, but okay. the only time we really bunt in our program, uh, except for like uh, safety squeezes and squeezes and double squeezes is when I see that the second baseman has steel responsibility at second base, that's an indicator that maybe we can push bunt and make the first baseman field it and there'll be no one covering first. So that's when we bunt. Over the years, one thing I've, I've seen in our program is that if a kid, um, you know, we give him bunt and he doesn't get it down, he fouls it off or it's a cold strike and now it's 0 and 1, that kid 95% of the time in our program has struck out. <laughs> yep. And so we next pitch after a missed bunt attempt or a cold strike, we slash and run automatic. Yep. No, no sign. Mark so Scaff when, at UNCW was really good at it. Even Paul Maneri, he didn't do it as much at LSU, but uh, Notre Dame, when he was at Notre Dame, really good slash hit and run out of Notre Dame when Paul was there. And so we did use it quite a bit. And I loved it as an offensive player. I think we naturally go back to the way we played. Was just lucky I played for coaches that allowed us to hit and run, slash hit and run, delay, push, drag, uh, yep. uh, button run, just all the things. And so we would try to implement it with, with some of our guys. You don't see it as much, but it's a problem for the opponent. If you, if your team can execute all those things, it's a problem for the opponent. And it's just fun. And it's fun. <laughs> and it's you know, fun. because, because, because the kid's probably going to strike out anyway, and that might not be true for other programs. It's just my observation of what yes. was happening here. Might as well do something fun. Right. Yep. Yeah. Do you have any other favorite team building exercises? Bowling. I love, love bowling. it. <laughs> love it that's a new one for here we haven't heard that one yet so love it yeah so we um a couple years ago we were rained out and uh we had the bus it was gonna be a road game and i didn't tell the guys we were rained out and um so i think i, I like we were, we were like halfway to the bowling i didn't tell them where we were going and i told them like oh i just got a call on my phone that uh we were rained out and the game's canceled and I said, and as a team building, as a team building opportunity, we're actually going to park the bus here and we're going to jog back to campus as a team, you know? <laughs> and I was like, that's pretty cool. Right. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, psych, we're going bowling. And they're like, yeah. So that's a fun one. Um, another thing is, is uh, I'm a big s'mores roast guy. Uh, so we, we love just setting up a fire pit in our backyard. Again, we live on campus. You know, our, our players live on campus as well. We do have some day students, but they live really, really close by. So, you know, my wife, Tina, is a saint, and she'll set up a table with the marshmallows and graham crackers and the chocolate and the sticks, and I get the fire going. And, you know, it's just a good time to, to you know, have conversations with kids, maybe one by one. You know, they can share what they want to accomplish this season. You can do, you can do a million different things for that. But anything involving food is always a good team-building thing. And we're a program that finds at least one opportunity to bowl, like, you know, during a season or, or leading up to the season. Do you have a fail forward moment? Do you have something that you thought was going to sidetrack you, but looking back now was one of the best things that happened to you? That's an awesome question. So everybody has to answer that. That's the one question yeah, that everybody has I, to answer. I, I got it. Um, you know, I, I played college. I finished my college playing career at the College of St. Rose. You know, I was a, I was a good player. You know, I did a lot of good stuff in the college summer leagues, which is where you get seen by scouts. And, you know, it's a good chance I was going to get drafted in, uh, you know, June of 1992. In May of 1992, I was diagnosed with lymphoma. So I had played that entire season with a grapefruit sized tumor in my chest. And I had no idea what was wrong with me. I just knew I did not feel well. And, uh, you know, I, I to the point where I, I, I sort of collapsed on the field in the playoffs at Bleecker Stadium in Albany, New York. And so it was from there 
to St. Peter's Hospital, admitted right to ICU, biopsy, and then, you know, ICU for a couple of weeks, and then right into chemotherapy and radiation. And that ate up a, more than a year of my life. Um, lost a bunch of weight, lost my hair, didn't feel good, obviously. Um, you know, that's in addition to the fact that, you know, you, you're questioning your own mortality. Like, am I going to get through this? Like, am I going to live? And, uh, you know, it, it affected me in ways that I didn't realize were affecting me at the time. And one of those ways were like, baseball was my only identity. That was the way I defined myself. Like if I introduce myself to you, like Kevin Graber, I'm a baseball player. If someone watched me walk by, they would say, Kevin Graber, that dude plays baseball. Like there was nothing else. And when the baseball thing was sort of taken away, it's kind of like, well, who actually am I? Um, and that was really, really challenging to, to sort of be introspective and understand that like that's that has to be just one part of who you are and what your life is. Um, and I had to come back for that. You know, it was it was after that that, I, you know, got back on the field playing anywhere I could. And, that, you know, I, I took that job coaching, you know, that Legion team in, in Scotia, New York, and, you know, found my way in my Plymouth Sundance to Lassen College in Susanville, California, and then managed the uh, Electric City Giants in the Mountains Collegiate Baseball League. But I really wanted to play again. And so, you know, I got an opportunity and that opportunity came overseas. I went and played club baseball in Australia for the Pine Rivers Rapids. You know, again, sight unseen. I, I paid my own way out there and arrived. I'm like, hey, I'm here. And I was in the starting lineup that day. And that was enough to get my playing resume back on track that I was able to, you know, come back to the States the following year and, and uh, play independent ball. Um, and I had a really good year playing for the Southern Minnesota Stars in the Prairie League of Professional Baseball. My manager was a guy named Greg Olson, who was a catcher for the Atlanta Braves for, you know, the, the Avery Glavin and Smoltz years. And, and uh, unfortunately, after that season, a um, little, little something came back on my chest x-ray and uh, not totally back to square one, but, you know, back to the hospital with some, you know, some treatments and some surgeries and stuff like that. And that was a bummer. But um, you're fortunate you're alive. Yeah, honestly, because when it comes back, I just had a player from Iowa pass away who had dealt with testicular cancer and um, yeah. it came back and obviously it wasn't good the last two years. How did you get off the mat during treatments? I mean, that's not the easiest thing in the world to go through treatments. So how, how did you get off the mat during treatments? Um, you know, I mean, I obviously I had a lot of teammates and support and friends and my mom, especially and my dad. Um, but then, you know, it's human nature. Like people kind of stop coming around. <laughs> um, they got their own lives to live. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, it was really, really hard. I, you know, I have nothing else to, to say in response to that other than I just kind of gritted my teeth and got through it. I didn't have a, a book that I read or a, a conversation that I had with someone or, a, you know, a podcast that I listened to or an example that somebody said, I just had to sort of put one foot in front of the other and figure out what I was going to do next, all while trying to get through this you know, these treatments and this, and this health scare. Um, you know, the second time when that little something popped up on my, my chest x-ray, that is actually what catapulted me into coaching because, you know, the team that I was playing for had offered me a contract to come back and play another season. And then, you know, I had to kind of tell them like, uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to, <laughs> I just got my chest cavity cut open. Um, and then something happened and they were like, well, you want to manage the team? I was like, you want me to manage in pro ball? I'm, I'm 27, but Sure. <laughs> so yeah, at that point I was the youngest manager in all of professional baseball and definitely was not ready for it, but I didn't tell them that I'm like, heck yeah, let's go. And, uh, you know, I, you know, one thing I heard somebody say at one point is you spend like half your life, not ready for the opportunities to come your way. And you spend the other half of your life feeling like you're, you're sort of, you, you've passed them by. 
I was definitely in that, in that point where I was not ready, but you know, you just, you just get in there, you try to make it happen, you're sure yourself and you do it. So yeah, that's what really catapulted me into the coaching thing. And I've been in it ever since. You have any other routines? You talked about taking your, your jog walks. Um, you have any other routines that you like? I am, this isn't great, but I am a night owl. That's okay. I'm, like it, it, it's part oh, of your chronotype. Yeah. I am so productive at night. You know, I'm the guy who's in bed with the laptop open 11, 30, 12. I'm doing the math in my head. Okay. If I do this until 1am and I get up at eight, all right, that's seven hours of sleep. Okay. That's okay. Like I, I like, I talk myself into stuff. So it's really hard for me to get out of bed in the morning. So I have zero, my morning routine is I sleep until the last possible second and I get to the office without having done anything else. So my, my stuff productively happens at night. But yeah, the, the one thing I do for myself every day is I get out there and I get on a trail run. You know, I get in the fitness center, lift some weights and that kind of thing. Um, and not only just for the, the exercise benefits of it, but, you know, I don't have time throughout the course of the day to listen to a podcast and learn stuff about coaching and you know, the ABCA stuff. So that's one time I can do it multitask, but it's also my time to be mindful myself. You know, I'll take the AirBud, you know, the, the AirPods out and put them in my pocket and just like listen to the breeze and the birds and, you know, feel the leaves crunching under my feet. So that's my time to be mindful as well. Hey, go through the process of getting ready for the main stage. Uh, it was, it was phenomenal. And just take somebody that's listening in. That's like, how does that process? Cause I know, and you know, but it's, it's fascinating how the whole process comes into play. I would describe it in one sentence, and that is be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, we all go to ABCA and we watch the presentations on demand and it's like, wow, that was awesome. And like, it's kind of like, man, I, I wonder if I'll ever get that opportunity here. And then you get the, I got the call from Matt Noon and Matt's a friend of mine. He's the head coach at um, Babson College, a great coach. And he's, uh, you know, he's a board member of the ABCA and he's the one that hit me, hit me up and invited me to, to, to present. He's like, we want a high school coach who could present on base running. And I was like, I got the guy. And I was like, yeah, heck yeah. And then I hang up the phone. I'm like, Oh, (laughs) Because well, the initial know, email is a lot, you know, John Litchfield in our office sends it out. So when you get the initial email from John, what is your first reaction? Um, it was like, okay, this is real now. Yeah. Like I actually have to start working on this and getting a PowerPoint presentation together. But one of the great things about it is they do so, John and his crew, they do such a good job keeping you on task because, you know, there's a timeline like this year, I think the presentation titles were due August 26th. So I had the title and the description done. All right, that's one part. And then, you know, your one page outline is due like October 12th. You got to let them know your audio visual requirements like November 19th. Uh, first draft of the PowerPoint was due December 3rd. My first draft of my PowerPoint was literally 90 minutes worth of content. <laughs> and, and Ryan, as you know, you get 37 minutes on that stage. Yes. And they're not joking. Like there is a, yes. a big red digital clock that counts down from 37 to zero. Um, and you you got to be done if you're finished or not. And then of course the final PowerPoint is due New Year's Eve. And uh, I, you know, again, I'm a late night guy and sometimes a last minute guy. I got a lot of stuff, other stuff going on here at the school. So yeah, I was down at, uh, um, you know, the coffee shop in downtown Andover with my laptop on, on New Year's day, <laughs> just cranking out the last few edits. And even after I, um, you know, submitted what was supposed to be my final PowerPoint, you know, I arrived in Chicago at ABCA with a thumb drive and I was like, I'm very humble. I'm like, Hey, can you use this version instead? <laughs> and of course, after I arrived at, at, in Chicago, 
I, I just kept rehearsing it in my hotel room over and over yeah. and over to the point where I didn't, I didn't watch anyone else present. Um, yeah. It's hard just, to, when you're speaking, yeah. I spoke in 2012, it's really hard to, cause you want to do such a good job. It's really hard to, to really enjoy the rest of it. What you're used to when you show up because you are speaking and you want to do a good job. And I was kind of starstruck. It's like, Hey, I'm working out in the fitness center. It's like just, chatting with Dan McConnell from Louisville, right? And, uh, you know, hey, there's Ron Polk. You know, I've I, I've had his playbook since, like, 1990. Uh, oh, Brian Kane. I was talking to Brian Kane backstage, and I'm like, you know, I, I basically want to ask him for his autograph. I know it's, it's weird, you know? And, and he was like, me? I was like, yeah, man, you. Uh, you know, Jeff Pick, Mike Roberts. You know, um, you know, Mike is, is my coaching idol. Um, so just, just being around those people, it's kind of like, wow, I got to be on stage presenting like those guys. But then once I got on, well, the first thing when I got on stage that I noticed is that, wow, the lights are really, really bright. Like I couldn't see anything, you know, so it's, it's different. I've, I presented at smaller venues where you can see the attendees and you get nonverbal feedback and, you know, they're nodding and writing stuff down and you're like, okay, I'm doing well here. Like they're buying what I'm selling. Like when I couldn't see the people in the audience, so I had no idea if I was killing or bombing or what was going on. So I just, I just stayed with it. You know, I delivered my presentation um, early on there was a glitch with one of my videos and I almost had a heart attack. You handled it I, fine though. I mean, it, oh, you, you, you handled it great. Well, internally I was doing jumping jacks. I know, but you handled it great. And you know, I, I felt like I, somebody backstage told me I had more video in my presentation than any other presentation. So I'm like, well, if this one's glitching. Are the 10,000 other videos I have in this yeah. PowerPoint going to glitch? Cause if they do, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble, but it, it turned out to be okay. So that was the one uh, heart attack inducing point in the presentation. Yeah, that's uh, with running the youth stage when I'll get a presentation that has a lot of videos because that's the communication. Like, it, can you have a lot of videos because it's great visual, but I'm like, hey, you're going to have to peel this back because you only have 37 minutes. Like, you're going to have to trim this back. I'm sorry, but it does force you to get more concise with your information. Yeah, and one of the cool things is just the amount of correspondence after ABCA. Yes. Um, because I've just gotten so many emails. You know, what other resources do you have? You know, questions about, you know, uh, you know, primary leads or diebacks or jump lead steel breaks and all this fun stuff. And, you know, can you send us what you do at third base? You know, you know, the stuff you presented at first and second was so good. And, you know, I've been on Zoom calls with, uh, you know, major division one coaching staffs. So I've been on Zoom calls with, you know, pro organizations. And I'm just like, little old me. Uh, <laughs> but so that part of it, that the aftermath has been really, really cool because I've made a lot of new friends and I feel like I've been of value to the baseball community. I feel like I've done a lot of taking information from other people and now the opportunity to sort of give yes. has been really really awesome yep what are some other tips for young coaches getting into this thing well i mean the first thing i learned at last in college thanks to steve abney and glenn yonan uh was that i didn't know anything <laughs> it was very very humbling and so the one thing i i, I realized real quick is this is going to be an exercise in continuing education you know, I need to ask a lot of questions. I need to be around coaches who are experienced. I read a ton of books. Like I have a, a library in my little office in our house with all the books that I have accumulated over the years. Um, you know, Coach Thurston, who I mentioned, who I coached with at Amherst College, who's in the ABCA Hall of Fame. You know, he's he's told me he has a library of books dating back to like the 50s and 60s at his home library. And I, from the first day I met him, I've always been like, that. that comes to me, right? Like, you know, not, not saying like in his will or anything like that. I don't want to, <laughs> but I want that library of books at some point. Um, so just, you know, it's 
there, there's no excuse for getting better and learning in this profession anymore because there are resources everywhere, but you got to take the time to be humble and, and embrace and learn stuff. How can we bring backyard baseball back? That is a really good question. One thing that we do every year here is, you know, I always arrive with a practice plan and the guys are used to reading that practice plan on the dugout wall or on the wall of our indoor facility. And they know what's going to happen for every second of every minute of that practice. And then we are like ants on a hill. You know what I'm saying? But we do one day every year where I arrive with, I arrive with the practice plan. And it just says wiffle ball. And then I just sit there and they ask me like, what do we do? I'm like, I don't know, figure it out. <laughs> So they end up picking teams. They end up setting up a diamond. They, uh, you know, they, they settle on the rules and, uh, you know, inevitably there'll be a close play and they'll come over and be like, coach, he's safe or out. I'm like, figure it out. And so that's one of the things that we do in our program. We'll take one or two days and we'll just let them play backyard baseball. Like literally, uh, you know, have a game of wiffle ball without any adult involvement. Are you having them throw wiffle balls at each other on the side when they hit? Are you having them throw to each other? Are you doing any of that? We, uh, I mean, we have the Max BP machine. Shout out to Max BP with the little um, wiffles. We love that for our bunt stations. Um, we're really specific about our bunting footwork, especially. But we don't do a lot of, we do more tennis ball stuff than we do wiffle ball stuff, if that makes sense. Um, you know, our indoor facility is great, but it has uh, like what, like lily white curtains around the perimeter. And our baseball, we're a high school baseball program. We don't have pearls. And so that's the motivation for using a lot of tennis balls. We want to keep the space kind of clean and not have ball marks everywhere. We want them to continue to let us use that space. What's specific about your footwork for Bunny? Yeah, we, um, if you, if you think of the, this is the, the front foot and this is the back foot. The first thing that goes is our front foot. We gain ground like a stride, like you would stride to hit. And ideally that, that freezes the third baseman but it also we're gaining ground toward foul territory. So we can get a successful bunt down and then the back foot follows and the bat comes with the back foot. And then we're, uh, you know, barrel connected to the eyes, you know, uh, you know, about shoulder height, the top of the strike zone. And then we're, you know, we're moving our entire body and our eyes with that barrel, wherever we go. Yeah. But the footwork is the, is the first thing that, that the kids do. And we, and we actually like to have that back foot flat on the ground rather than up on the ball. Okay. Yep. Cause we want them to, um, you know, be able to push it off to first base. We also want them to be able to defense roll if, uh, you know, if that pitch comes inside. So, and, you know, I take that from what I see in college baseball. Um, you know, I got ESPN plus I'm aiming my smartphone. Coastal was one of the first teams that was doing more of the, the flat back foot for, for Bonnie. I have the Gary Gilmore short game DVD in my library. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, and again, I like that we're intentional about it. And I like that what we teach and what we do is taken directly from college baseball. Cause again, the goal is we want our guys to arrive at college baseball. And I want those coaches to be like that, that, that kid. They're ready. Yeah. 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 What are some final thoughts? Final thoughts. Or anything, are, should I, anything I should have asked you that I didn't. Oh man, you've asked such, such really good questions. And I think we've covered a ton of ground. Um, I, I just want to revisit one of the first things I said in this conversation is that this really has been a bucket list thing for me to be on this podcast. Because, uh, you know, I, I may have listened to every podcast that ABCA puts out there. And it's just a big part of my day. Um, you know, again, my trail, is, my trail run is part of my routine. And I always have those podcasts fired up. So, you know, to, to have this opportunity to be here with you. Um, We're almost like to a, 300 now. I mean, yeah. it's with the father and son ones. We have like 20 more than what's listed. So I think this will be like 288. So, I mean, we're, we're close to, to almost 300 now, which is 
crazy to think about. You know, Jeremy obviously did a great job, but uh, to think that we've we've carried the load here and gone halfway, you know, he he, it's about half and half now, which is crazy to think that. I didn't even know if we'd get to, to 20 episodes, so it's it's crazy to think about that. How many? We're almost to 300 now. Well, the ABC is amazing, and the work you guys put in and the resources you put out there are exceptional. Um, the opportunity to have presented on the main stage in Chicago this past year, another bucket list item. So, man, I feel like I'm I'm trending right now, and it's all because of y'all. So, thank you. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks again for jumping on with me, KG. Have a hopefully the weather breaks here and we're able to get outside. But it, I know it doesn't matter for you because you can hammer an inside practice. Absolutely. But it is almost 60 degrees outside. Love it. Yeah. So let's go. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Brian. Catch you later. We have so many great stories in the baseball industry. Coach Graber is another example of the different paths you can take in the sport. I appreciate his willingness to move and also to bet on himself. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABC office for all the help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email rbrownlee at abca.org. Twitter and TikTok, CoachB underscore ABCA, Instagram, Ryan Brownlee 17, or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you. Oh